Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study through the book of Numbers in our series, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're in Numbers chapter 16 today. Numbers chapter 16 as we go through. You know, there are a number of uh, great rivalries in sports, especially when it comes into the fans in their cities. For example, it'll, it'll divide a city at times. Uh, in L.A., for basketball. You're a Clippers fan or a Lakers fan. People ask, so who do you cheer for? In our state, we see it here with sports all the time. For hockey fans, you may look and say, well, I'm a Flyers fan, but you can't stand the Penguins or vice versa. Football's the same thing. Eagles or Steelers. Usually it's not both, you know, unless they, they make the Steagles again, but that, I don't think that's going to ever happen. But there are very few rivalries in sports that truly divide a city. Like, divide very firmly as the White Sox and the Cubs. Now, I know some of you are just looking and going, oh, it's just Chicago, and you just want to talk about Chicago. But I'm here to tell you that this does not exist in Chicago. This is a Photoshop picture. There are not fans who are both. If you grew up in, in Chicago, I've often joked, you can tell if someone's from Chicago by asking them which baseball team do you, do you, do you root for. And if they say, oh, I don't, you know, either one's fine with me. I can tell you that they did not initially grow up in Chicago. Yes, I know it's a stereotype and there probably is one or two out there. But even, even those in our congregation who are from Chicago, we joke about it. We know that to be true and we have differences of opinions. I'm a White Sox fan. Some of you are Cubs fans. And that's okay. We can still get along in harmony together. But in Chicago, there is a great divide. It is there. This is from the, the New York Times did a piece on the division in the city of Chicago over baseball and, and the divide that occurs. But what a lot of people don't realize is that that line of dividing the north side versus the south side existed way back, much earlier, about the same time that those two teams came around back when they used to be the, the Saints and the Orphans. That was their original. The Cubs were the Orphans and the Sox were the Saints. Go figure, until they became the White Stockings and the Black Stockings. Then we became the White Sox. But that division that was there started for a more notorious reason. It started a lot back with the gangs in Chicago during Prohibition. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, Al Capone just ruled Chicago. That's not true. Capone ruled the south side of Chicago. Another gangster by the name of Bugs Moran, he ruled the north side, and they did not like each other. And there was a, there was a line of demarcation that they would try to cross, and it, it caused havoc, and it caused gang rivalries. And it got to the point where they were constantly trying to take the other one out, where they were placing hits on each other. In fact, it got, to, it got so bad to the uh, severe the Bugs Moran in 1929 put a $50,000 bounty on the head of Al Capone. And Capone just decided, that's it, I'm done with it. And he decided that he was going to, to end this once and for all. And we know what happened, for those of you who follow some of this, and, uh, but you, you'll, you've heard of what's called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where Capone sent in, and it was to be a hit on Moran, but they took out the, the seven main players in Moran's gang in just a cruel and ruthless fashion. Moran was mean. Capone was ruthless. 
And so what happened was, yes, Capone rebelled from the south side. He said, I'm done with this. I'm going to take over Chicago. I am not content with the power that I have, the position that I have owning and ruling the south side. I want it all. I want more. And so he, he sends this in. And it's because of this situation that his rebellion from the south side that caused the, the federal government to actually step in. And it ended up being the end of Capone. Even though he ruled Chicago for a few, a few years, not even that, after that, he was in and out over the next 10 years in jail and died only 10 years later uh, because of it. This rebellion that he set off, he could not handle the long-term effects. And you know, the South Side Rebellion that occurred it happened in Chicago, but there's a, there's a more important Southside rebellion that happened in Numbers chapter 16. Israel has their own rebellion. When we get here to Numbers 16, you're going to find that what has happened here is there is going to be a rebellion between Reuben and some of the people from Reuben. Now remember, in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 10, Reuben is, is said to be on the south side of the camp. And the other group that's involved is a, a man by the name of Korah, who is a Kohathite. He is a member of the tribe of, tribe of Levi. Where was Levi? They were on the south side of the tabernacle. So it's these individuals who are together in an area are going to start complaining, going to start whining, going to start desiring more and not being content with their position. And there is going to be a rebellion that occurs from the south side of the tabernacle. And what goes on is what we see in Numbers chapter 16. What we see is sin is going to spread. Look in verse 1. It says, And now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, so he's from that tribe of Levi, the son of Levi, and Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eli, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, they took men, and they rose up before Moses, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, Famous in the congregation, men of renown. So this, this complaining, this disgruntledness starts with four people. It moves to 250 people. And by the time you get to verse number 41, you're going to have all of the congregation of the children of Israel. So this sin just spreads like a weed. The complaining, just the murmuring goes out as we've seen has happened before. And it's so easy with Israel. And it's so easy with us too, if we're honest with ourselves. So what we have here is what is often called Korah's rebellion. What occurs here now in the next verses is going to be these, these four men and the men who are, the people who are following them are going to seek to rebel against Moses and against Aaron. And we see that occurred. What happens? Verse 3. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they're going to make some claims. So what are, what are the claims? What are the charges that are going to be levied against Moses and Aaron? I, I admire Moses the more I study this and Aaron. I mean, how many times? We're, we're only, you know, a third, a little over a third of the way through the book. And how many times have we seen claims being filed against this guy? challenges to his authority, rebukes by the people saying, you haven't done a good job. You're a terrible leader. Look at, look at what they say here. They're going to say, you take too much upon you. In other words, you, the translation here is you've gone too far. You have taken way too much authority. You've committed a malpractice. You really, uh, you've really messed up this time, Moses. We're not able to go into the promised land. Not because of Moses, it's because of the people's choice. 
These, they're looking and saying, you have taken way too much authority upon yourself. But look what he couches. Korah puts right in the middle. He says, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. He's going to state biblical truth there. Is it true that the Lord is among all the people? Absolutely. Is it true that they are all to be holy? They are a priesthood. They are set apart. They are distinct. Yes. He's going to take some truth and he's going to try and pick God's truth against one another. He's going to look and say, well, I think this and I think this. So we're going to go with my interpretation of what I think should happen. And he's going to challenge Moses' claims. So he takes those trips, truths, and pits them against each other. But look what else he says. He says, why have you then lifted up yourself above the congregation of the Lord? In other words, Moses, you have self-appointed yourself as leader. And who gave you that right, Moses? It's almost as if these people are saying, Korah and the Datham and Abiram, all of this is couched together. It's almost as if they're saying, Moses just decided to wake up one morning and said, hey, Aaron, I think we should uh, make ourselves leaders of Israel and let's, you know, let's be in charge here. What do you think, Aaron? It's just ludicrous. We know the story. We know what has happened all the way through the book of Exodus. We know how God calls Moses with the fiery bush. We, 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 we understand all of that. So what really they are doing is they are challenging Moses' leadership and they are cho- choosing, or choosing, wow, challenging their divine appointment. Really? Who's put you in charge? I know you keep saying God, but we don't think that's true. We think we should be in charge. We think we should have the right to be a priest. Those are going to be the, the, the challenges that are going to be levied here against Moses. So what's really going on? There's, there's two groups. There is Korah and his 250. And along with them is another two, another two or three people called Datham, Abiram, and An is also there. Though we only see An mentioned in the first part. We'll talk about that in a moment. What does Korah want? Korah wants his position as a Levite to be able to be transferred into being a priest. Now remember from our previous studies, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. God has made a distinction. God has said that only from uh, the, the family of Aaron will the priests be. That was from Leviticus 8. God has established the order. God has established the position for Korah. Not, not Moses, but God. However, Korah still felt he should be able to be a priest. He wanted that positioning. And Moses is going to point that out here in just a second to, to really drive, drive that point home. The Reubenites, uh, Datham, Abiram, and on, they're going to want a greater position of authority. Now remember, they're going to look and say, okay, God, Moses, who made you the captain? We know that God did, but they're not going to admit that. They're going to rebel against that. They're pushing back against that. The Reubenites, if you remember from your Bible history, they were, Reuben was the firstborn. They were to have authority. They were to have position, but they lost that because of Reuben's sin. They lost that because of how Reuben handled situations in life. And he, he lost the blessing of being firstborn. They're trying to flex their muscles and come back. They're trying to have some greater position of authority. And they're not going to recognize Moses' authority. We'll see that as well in just a moment. It, it reminds me 
of this whole, the whole existence of this coexist movement. Everybody wants everybody to be all on the same page. We don't think that it should just be this narrow view of what God has said. We think there might be more than just Jehovah. What about Allah? What about Buddha? What about, you know, paganism and, and Satan worship? And we think we should just all be able to be okay, come together, get along. And they don't like this idea of the narrowness of God. What's really interesting to me is when you start looking at these images... There are similarities, but none of them are ever the same because everybody's got their own perspective. Everybody wants what they want, not to have some authority tell them this is the structure, this is the way, this is what is to happen. And so, you know, it's, I like to think of God as a kind and welcoming God is what they would say, whom anyone could approach at any time. You see that philosophy in Korah, Datham, Abiram. We don't think it's just what God and Moses say. We like to think that we're all equal, that we can all come, that we can all maybe be priests, but they're not really seeking for a complete equality. They don't want that. In fact, if they were to have that, if they just had a complete equality before everybody, Korah's going to lose the special privilege he's seeking after. Korah wants not just to be a Levite, but he wants to be a priest. And he doesn't want it so that everyone else can have it. He wants it so that he has access to this special group for himself. Datham, Abiram, they don't want everybody to be in charge. They just want to have some authority and input. They want to say, we're not happy with your choices, so we want to be the ones who make the choice. So they're rebelling against the God-ordained authorities that are in their life. And they're pushing back. It reminds me when I was reading and thinking about it and came across it in one of the commentaries about Animal Farm. If you've ever read that book by George Orwell, one of the things that happens in the book is the rebellions start because every, all the animals want to be equal. We want to be equal. We want to overthrow the humans. And they, they keep the rioting and they keep revolting and the, the comrades come together and, and all of this happens. But the main tenet by the end is this idea that all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And that's what, that's what Korah and Datham and Abiram are driving at. We all think we should have more. We're all holy. We are all in God's presence. We should have more authority, more rights. But, you know, really we think we should have a little bit more than the guy next to me. And so they're driving at this, this equality that they want. We see that in our society all the time now. But these men were vying. What are they doing? They're vying for spiritual and political power. Korah wants more spiritual authority. Datham and Abiram want a more political power. So they do rebellions. They get the riots going. They get the excitement because we got to overthrow the man on top. We got to get rid of him because God has placed him there. He says we've got to overthrow. So we're going to challenge his authority. We're going to start complaining, start the process, get the, get the whisper train happening, and then we'll be able to, to overthrow them. But, you know, we really see this philosophy, if you think about it, in today's church. Think, think about this for a moment. You take truths of God. God's made us all in his image. Those of us who are saved, we are all called saints. We are all holy. We're all part of one body, the body of Christ. We are all there. 
Yet we have to recognize that God does not eliminate distinctions, order, or qualifications from his leadership. What I'm saying here is this. We look at our church sometimes, and we can easily say, are we all equal in Christ? Absolutely. At the foot of the cross, it's flat. We understand that. We are all made in God's image. And yet, God has clearly laid out in Scripture that in the church, there is a structure. There is an authority. There are leaders that are established by God and they are given qualifications by God. You can very easily look through 1 Timothy 3. You can look through Titus and you can see the qualifications for pastors, for deacons. You can see that it says a man, a a male, biological male, not identifying as a male, birthborn as a male. It says there to be the pastors, the deacons. And yet do we see that that comes under attack by the feminist agenda? Well, we don't like that that is what has been said. And yet, over the decades, we've seen that. That is a direct philosophy that Korah has, that we're all equal and we should all have the same right and the same authority. It's not me standing up here as a man saying that only men can be pastors. It is God's word that lays that out. And so for us to to rebel against that would be wrong. And most of us who are in our church and our, you know, listening audience here, we, we all agree. We, we hear that. But I would argue that we even see that happening with all this COVID stuff that's going on right now in our, in our society. We see these attacks that are coming. Church leadership has been placed sovereignly by God to shepherd and to serve the church. I mean, think about our church for a moment. How in the world do we get a senior pastor who is from Minnesota— who grew up in an in a all-Catholic city, finds himself all the way across, the, halfway across the United States to pastor a church in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Just a coincidence? No, God has sovereignly put pastor in this position. He is here because God wants him in this position. Yes, I understand we vote as a church, but when we make votes, voting for pastors, voting for deacons, I hope that you don't just look at that as a popularity contest or, ooh, I think they would be, you know, just really cool and fun to be around. So, or I like them more than them, so I'm going to vote. No, when we make those decisions, those are spiritual decisions and God takes those decisions and uses them in order to have the people that he would have in positions of leadership and authority. For this moment in our life, in our church, God is sovereignly, uniquely through the wonderful process of our church and the voting that occurs, the deacons who we have are there because that is who God wants to have there. Our pastor is who God wants to have here. And so when we look at the leadership that they display, the choices, the decisions that they make, do we find ourselves that in positions where we think they should just take a poll to see what's right, what we should do? Or do they, are they spiritually led by God to make decisions? I've watched these men over the last weeks pouring their heart out to God, seeking God's wisdom, because they know the decisions that they are making for our church are difficult ones. They're spiritual ones. And however, when they, when they make the decisions, when they make decisions about how we're going to do services, when we're going to do services, masks or no masks, all those different things, 
Do we come with the heart attitude of Korah and the Reubenites? Do we look and say, uh, you've overstepped. You've gone too far, Moses. You don't have the right or the authority to tell us what to do. Your, your authority is invalid. And yet we look and say, God is the one who has established the model for church structure, for the pastor, for the deacons, to make decisions. Do we look and go, you haven't went far enough. Maybe you've gone too far. We have, we have both opinions in our church. And so these men who are making these decisions really on their face before God, interceding, asking for wisdom. But we look and do we have the hard attitude that they have? You've gone too far. You haven't gone enough. We should all have an equal say. Why don't we just, let's find out from the congregation. Let's pull everybody. And then whatever the, whatever the final say is, that's what we should do. So every man does that which is right in their own. No, we're not there. God has established it, but we can have that hard attitude. Do you say, if I don't like what's being done by the leadership, then you know what? I'm just going to complain to just a few people. And and maybe if we get enough people complaining, then they're going to have to change their minds. That is the heart attitude of Korah and the Reubenites in this passage. They are seeking to stir up because they don't like the decisions. They don't like what the leadership is doing. They don't think they're acting competently. They don't think they're acting wisely. And so therefore, they're trying to drum up support for their position. I I find myself struggling with some of these at times in my life, even in the recent weeks. Like, well, I have this opinion. Well, you know what? I have a responsibility to submit to the leadership that God has placed in my life and whatever I am asked to do from my pastor, from my deacons, I have a responsibility to follow after that. Not to constantly buck and to prick, but to follow after. God has uniquely designed the church. This is a biblical concept. To be led by the pastor and by the deacons. We may not like that at times from our American Democrat. We are not a pure democracy in a church. God did not establish that. There are moments where we have some democratic rule and voting. We understand that. But we need to look and say, wait, our church is being led by spiritual and godly men who God has sovereignly placed at this time. I need to make sure in my grumbling and complaining that I am not taking the attitude of Korah thinking I could do a whole lot better, put me in that position. Or taking the attitude of the Reubenites and saying, I don't have that position. I don't have the power. Give me the power. Give me the the leadership and I'll do it. We need to be wise. Now, what is the response of Moses in this? When these charges are levied, look what happens in verse four. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. When Moses falls on his face, it usually means that someone has insulted God. That's a general across. You see Moses fall on his face. Generally, someone's just insulted God. It's almost like one commentator put it, it's almost like he's ducking for cover, waiting for the almighty judgment of God to come down. Like when you see Moses fall on his face, like he knows the right hand of God, the judgment is coming. And so he's ducking to, to get out of the way. And that's what's happening here. We know that Moses is praying. We know that he is interceding. We know that he is seeking uh, wisdom from and counsel from God. We know that's happening. But Moses is going to then set forth a challenge. It seemingly, it comes from God. In verse 5, it says that he's going to speak to Korah and all of his company saying, okay, tomorrow 
the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him. Even whom he has chosen will he cause to come near. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 6. Take censers. They, those were the items that were used, uh, either dishes or sometimes swung, where they would have incense in them, and they would be used to offer up to incense up to God. He says, I want you to take censers, Cora, and all of your company, all 250 of you, put fire in them, put incense in them, and then before the Lord tomorrow, it shall come to pass, or it shall be, that the man whom the Lord doth choose he shall be holy. He shall be the one who's set apart. And then look what he says. You take too much upon you, sons of Levi. So Moses is going to look and he's going to tell him to take the censers. Tomorrow you're going to do this. Notice that he gives, um, he gives him time to change his mind. Verse 7, verse 16, he says, we're not going to do this right now. You've got till tomorrow. And a number of writers talk about that God is just giving them, Moses is giving them the opportunity to back away in his patience, in his mercy. Is this what happened to On in verse number one? We never hear about On again. He's, he's not in the, he, he doesn't get swallowed up with Datham and Abiram later on. He doesn't, he doesn't face that. Did On back away? Possibly, we don't know. But God gives them the opportunity Moses' statement to the Levites, he says, you take too much upon you. He's going to, the same words that they used against Moses, saying you take too much upon you, Moses. You've overstepped, you've gone too far. Moses looks back at them and says, you've gone too far with your grumbling, with your complaining, with your deceit, with your treachery that is happening. It seems like a small thing to you. Verse number nine. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel, look, listen to what he says. That the God of Israel has separated you, talking to Korah and the Levites, from the congregation of Israel. To do what? To bring you near to, the, to himself. To do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord. And to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. That is a huge, wonderful responsibility. You are in this position of prestige and authority already. There are millions of others in the, in the tribes who would love to be in the position that you have, Korah. But is that too small for you? Is that too unimportant? Is it too insignificant, the position that God has placed you in? Or is it enough? Obviously for Korah, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. And he says, and look, look in verse, here's where he, he hits it on the head. Verse 10. And he hath brought thee near to him and all the brethren of the sons of Levi with thee, and you seek the priesthood also? You're not content with your unique role that God has given to you? That you want more? There's a difference between saying, okay, I want to push myself a little bit more to, to uh, I appreciate it. Somebody came to me the other day and said, hey, I'm not going to do this ministry anymore because I really want to push myself to maybe teach a little bit for the kids. It's like, okay, that's, that's good. That's not what he's saying here. He's looking and saying, I want that authority. I want that prestige position. I want what God has given to them. I want it upon myself for my power to be part of this select group. And, and he wants to be in there. So the sin of pride, the sin of jealousy, the sin of selfish ambition, it all rears their ugly head through a complaining heart. We just trivialize complaints. God does not. 
He hits the nail on the head where we talked about verse 11. What do they do? For which cause both thou and your company are gathered together against the Lord. He looks and says, this is not against me. Moses is saying, you're attacking me, but this is, your issue is not with me. Your issue is with God. You've gathered all these people against the Lord. And he says, when we rebel against the divinely appointed authorities in our life, when we find ourselves complaining against the divinely appointed, sovereignly placed authorities in our life, what are we doing? We're complaining against God. We're rebelling against the men that he has placed in our life, against the authorities that he has placed in our life. And he says, why Aaron? Why are you, why are you against him? Because he's a priest? Because he's got the position you want? And so you're going to complain about him just so maybe you can get him discredited so that you can get into that position, Korah, you Levites? Is that what you're doing here? And Moses, Moses just hits that nail on the head and drives it home. These Levites, they wanted to be priests. Now he jumps to the other group. You still, so that's Korah and the, the 250 who are following Korah. But there's a whole other disgruntled part that they're still pushing against it. Different agendas, but yet the same goal of getting rid of the authorities that God has placed in their life, of having the equal authority, the say, the power, the position. You see it starting in verse number 12. Verse number 12, you have the, sent out the call. Moses sends out a call to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. So Moses sends people to them and says, have them come to me. And what do they respond? They say, we will not come up. Now, that may just look like a little phrase that's just like, okay, well, we're just going to stay here and we're not going to do it. But there's, it's, it's a loaded phrase. Notice what they say. Verse number 13. Is it a small thing? Remember verse 9, Moses used the, his word, those words against Korah. Is this an unimportant thing? They look at Moses and they're going to say, is it a small thing? Is it unimportant, Moses? And look what they say. I mean, this is just treachery against God Almighty. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey? They just called Egypt. They equated Egypt as the land that flows with milk and honey. What did God say was the land? Where was the land that flowed with milk and honey? It was the promised land. And yet they're going to say, you brought us, is it small and insignificant to you, Moses, that you brought us out of a land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself a prince over all of us? You're just going to make yourself a king so that you can keep yourself in authority. You've done all this just for your own self-glorification, just for your own self-authority, just for your own self-whims and wishes. He says, moreover, Datham and Abiram say, verse 14, moreover, you have brought us into, you have not brought us, excuse me, into the land that flows with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Wilt thou also put out the eyes of these men? In other words, that phrase there is the idea of, are you going to make them blind too? Are you just going to keep putting the, pulling the wool over their eyes so they can't see where they're going? Moses, we see through what you're doing. You brought us out of a wonderful place. You said you're going to lead us to a more wonderful place with all this stuff, and you haven't provided. The reason they're in this position is because of the people's unbelief and rebellion against God in the first place. They throw Moses' words back at him, and they, they talk about all the things we just talked about. Are you going to make it? But he says, we will not come up. This term, because notice again, they say it at the end of verse 14. Definitively, we will not come up. 
This term is used to indicate going to a higher authority or a judge. Someone who has a position of prominence to declare right, wrong, to make the verdicts. So they're not, they're not just saying, we're just going to stay here. We don't care what you say. They're making a definitive rebuttal, refusal of Moses' authority. They're saying, we don't recognize you as our authority. Therefore, we don't recognize God as the authority. They're, they're pretty heinous in what they do. They are, they're rejecting all God's stuff. All of God's perspective, God's authority, God's leadership. And they're looking and saying, we want nothing to do with it. Is it a small thing? Do you blind these men? We will not come up. These men have given their notice of intent not to follow Moses any longer. Korah's still, he's going to say, I might have a chance here. God might side with me. Datham and Abiram said, we're done. We, we do not recognize the authority of Moses at all. So Moses is going to be angered. Verse 15, he is very wroth. And what does he do? He prays to the Lord. And he says, do not respect their offerings. I have any, he, 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 uh, he, he's not trying to vindicate himself here. He's just saying, God, you know, I've taken nothing. I've not taken a donkey from them. Neither have I hurt any of them. I've done nothing like it, it's being accused. So he prays, he prays to God in angry, frustrated prayer, but he understands this. He understands the rebellion's not against him. It's because of their unbelief toward God, their disrespect toward God, their disobedience toward God. That's how Moses and God view this complaining spirit. They see it as one of rebellion, one of unbelief in God's trust and God's providence and God's good pleasures for us. They see it as a complete disrespect for what God has established. Again, we can see that oftentimes in the modern church, can't we? It's just, it's, it's a hard passage. It's, it's a two by four passage as I, Sharon and I like to call them. They just hit us upside the head like a two by four. He states he's done nothing wrong against them. So verses 16 and 17, you're going to see that the challenge is going to be reiterated. Moses is just going to say it again, Cora, this is what you're to do. You know, but the question really remains on the next day, is Cora going to show up? Or will someone, you know, have knocked some sense into him? Corey, you don't want to do this. This is not good. Everybody who's rebelled against, everybody who's complaining, you remember what happened to Miriam. You remember what happened to the people at Kibroth HaTavah with the, the, the eating the birds. and Everybody who complains against God, this is not good. Cora, are you going to do it? I mean, all of us who are studying through this together, we see that. We're like, really? You're going to complain again? Don't do it. It doesn't end well. But what happens? Verse 18, Cora shows up. Cora, he is convinced that he's, he's got God on his side. And notice what happens in verse uh, 18. It says, They took every man a censer, they put it in the fire, the incense, they stood around the door of the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron. So Korah and a whole bunch of people show up. Moses and Aaron are there as well. Verse 19. Uh, uh, it should be verse 18, sorry. And then verse 19. As they're standing at the door of the congregation, somebody else shows up too. The glory of God appears. The Lord makes his presence known. This is not going to be Moses making a decision. This is going to be God looking and saying, Corey, you've overstepped. You've went way too far. Datham, Abiram, you won't come up here, but you're going to see me. You're going to see the appearance of the Lord, and you're going to know that God has appointed Moses and Aaron. You're going to, you're going to find that out, and you're going to, they're going to find it out the hard way. 
for those of you who know the story. But what happens? Look in verse 20. Again, baffles me. God is going to look. He's going to speak to Moses and Aaron. And he's going to say, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And what do they do? And they fall on their faces. God tells them, back up. I'm going to wipe out all of Israel. The whole congregation, they're done. Verse 21. He is, God, is, God is exhausted with these people. And yet his patience, his love, his mercy. But Moses and Aaron, once again, fall on their face. You're going to see that three different times in the whole chapter. But they fall on their face. He says, I'm going to consume them in a moment. The judgment is pronounced. But they fall on their face. And notice how they phrase it. They say, oh God, the God of spirits of all flesh. They don't use Jehovah here. They use El or Elohim, referring back to the creator God. God, you've created these individuals. You are the one who is over them. You know what, you know what these humans are like. You are the creator of all flesh. Are you going to wipe all of them out because of the sin of this one individual? Or these few, the idea of all of these 250 that are here. Are you going to wipe out all of Israel because of this small rebellion and scale? Are you going to wipe them all out? Are you going to do that? Lord, please don't do it. And the Lord in his justice and his mercy is still going to deal with sin. But he's going to mercifully give them the opportunity. Look what he says in verse 24. Speak unto the congregation saying, Get up from away from the tabernacle of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. The word tabernacle is their abode or their dwelling place. It's not talking about the tabernacle. It's talking about their tent, their individual homes. Get away from them. Separate yourself from them. Choose to stand by them or separate from them. So God gives the people a choice. Are you going to side with those who are rebelling against me? Are you going to side with those who are complaining against my authorities that I have established? Are you going to complain against the decisions that these men have made? Or are you going to stand with God? What are you going to do? And he gives them the opportunity to make the decision. And Moses conveys that, verse 24. Speak to the congregation. He's going to do that. And Moses rose up, verse 25, and went to Datham and Abiram. And he's going to let the people know. Notice that, verse 24. Underline that. Draw a little line over, back over to verse 14. Moses' leadership here is amazing. Moses will go to those who refuse to go to him. He steps down and he's going to go confront the issue. He's going to look at them so that people couldn't say, well, they didn't know about it. He leaves the tabernacle, goes to the abodes of Datham and Abiram, and he says, here's the situation. And all of you who are complaining with them, all of you who are rebelling with them right now and grumbling, I'm asking you to consider separating from these wicked men. Verse 26, I pray. He says, I'm, I'm asking. He's not, he's, I'm begging you. Get away from the tents of them. Don't even touch the wicked things, lest you be consumed in all of their sins. It's unclean. Don't let them rub off on you. Get away. The result of standing by them or identifying with them and their stuff is that you will be consumed in their sins. There's, it talks about that word consumed. We're going to see verse 35 later on. It's going to talk about people being consumed. It's going, it's going to happen. So God's judgment, we'll see here, comes on. These men and their families, they stood by their tents. It doesn't even seem like all of them, because we're going to talk later on in the book of Numbers, some of the family of Korah still exists after this. So it seems like even some of the family may have backed away and said, we're not going to identify with them, but they were given the choice by God. I'm not going to wipe them all out, but if they identify with them, they're going to face the judgment of their sin. 
or they can choose righteousness and follow after me. Moses makes it clear. And how does he do that? Look what he says. You're going to know. Moses is going to say, this is not my, I'm not just going to put you to death execution style. God is going to deal with this. And if he doesn't, then I'm not the leader. I'm not the one. Notice what he says down in verse uh, 20, uh, what I have up there, 27. I think it's a little bit later than that. Uh, Verse 28. Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own mind. Moses says again, your issues with God, not with me. If these men die a common death of all men, or if they be visited after visitation of all men, if they die a normal death, if they're able to be seen after, after they're died and you know, have a, a funeral, a mourning, if, they, if that's able to happen because they're still here, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the Lord and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain or they own, and they go down quick to the pit, to Sheol, to the grave, then you shall understand that these men have done what? They have provoked the Lord. So Moses says, if it's new, then you'll find out if they do. Moses makes no mention here of his own vindication. He's not going to look and say, look, I'm right. He sees this rebellion against those who God has chosen as rebellion against him. This does not mean leaders are always right. We know that, that that's not always the case. But he's looking and saying the rebellion against the leader is a rebellion against God. We have to be very careful of how often or how we complain against the spiritual leaders that God has put into our lives. Against the men that God has wonderfully placed for you and I to be submitting to, to follow after. He challenges us with that. And that applies so directly to our church, to churches today. To look and to say, are we rebelling because we're arguing and really ticked off and upset about some of the the spiritual decisions and practical decisions that leaders in our congregation have made? We have to be wise. We have to be careful. It's hard. Moses makes it clear, the grumbling the distrust of authority in his program, the jealousy and pride of the individuals, the lack of commitment and contentment with their position. It is evil. He calls it evil. These wicked men and what they're doing, it is wicked. It is evil. And God despises it. So did they provoke the Lord? Absolutely. We know that God was provoked. The the word here for provoked has the idea of... um, to, to rebel against. I, I think I have it here in a second. But look what happens. Verse 31 and following came to pass. As soon as he's done speaking, all of these words, the ground clave asunder that was under them and opened up. So it's shaking. It splits open. It swallows up their, their houses, Korahs, Abirams, Dathams. All of, it, all of it is there. And all of the other members who are... Uh, with this movement, but not the 250. So anybody who stood with these men, they were all swallowed up into the pit. Not the 250. The 250 are going to be dealt with in, in just a second here. The 250 get their own special judgment. Very similar to what happens in Leviticus 10 to Nadab and Abihu. We see that uh, down, in, down in verse uh, 34, uh, Verse 35, excuse me. And there came fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 that offered the incense. 
So the ground opens up, people are swallowed up, fire is raining down from heaven and consuming those who stood with Korah uh, and the, two, the 250, and it, and it happens. And I have to ask myself at this point, and we're going to stop here going through the passage because I want us to just think for a second. God despises, he hates complaining. It provokes him. It causes, it, it's, a, it's a rebuke or a rebuttal, a refusal of him. Why does God hate complaining? And as we've seen this cycle of complaints through numbers and even back into Leviticus or Exodus, excuse me, what is it? Why does God hate complaining? We need to stop complaining. Why? Why? Because complaining is self-destructive. It is poison to our souls. Look at the individuals, whether it's Miriam or whether it's Nadab, uh, not Nadab, uh, Datham and Abiram, Korah, the people grumbling and complaining about the the quail that they didn't have meat. It kills them. It is self-destructive. It sends us down a path that poisons our soul, that leads to bitterness. Why else should we be careful about complaining? Because it's contagious. We see that continually happen. It starts with the small people, with the rabble. Now we're not even talking about the rabble, man. This complaining has moved to the center of camp. It's the Levites. It's some of the Levites. It's some of the Reubenites. They're right there. It's in camp. They're complaining. It's contagious. It goes from 4 to 250 to the camp. Complaining. We have to be careful. It's not just because I start complaining and then people like agree with me. It doesn't mean, ooh, I'm right. It just means that I found people who are going to agree with me and we're just going to keep complaining. It's contagious. It's dangerous. Complaining depresses leaders. You need to think, remember back to chapter 12. Moses is in a dark spot emotionally. He's depressed. He is hurting. Here we have him again. I mean, he is wroth. He is angered. But it's a battle for these leaders who are constantly pouring their hearts out to God, trying to do the best, and then people complaining and whining and sending texts and giving phone calls and saying, you didn't do this right. What's the matter with you? Why would you do this? Or we wish you would have done... What are we, what are we doing? Now, complaining, it doesn't mean that I agree on everything, but that hard attitude, one that, one that expresses my disagreement with humility... One that expresses it with an attitude of respect. That's different than the arrogant, name-calling, bitter, vitriolic words that sadly come from Christians on social media all the time. They come from Christians in the church when they huddle together, when they're off doing their own thing. We must be careful about complaining because it has an impact on our leadership. We don't want to discourage our leaders. We ought to be praying and encouraging our pastor, our deacons. Why to be doing that? We need to watch it because complaining divides. We see it happening all the time where, it, where all of a sudden a section is moving out. It divides. We're this group or we're that group. No, we are, we are a body of believers who must live in harmony Harmony is different. We're not talking a conformity to uniformity like one way. Harmony is two notes, three or four notes that all play together and they work together. They're not in discord, but rather they work in such a way that, yes, there are a couple different notes being played, but we can have respect and we can be joyful with one another 
if I'm talking to a person who doesn't want to wear a mask or a person who does want to wear a mask in the church. I need to be careful. I need to be harmonious with them. I need to be wise because I need to watch out because complaining divides. Complaining drifts us towards disobedience. Look at these individuals. Are you going to stand with the rebels? You've been complaining. You're moving that direction. Are you going to disobey God? Are you going to disobey and push against the authorities that he's placed into your life? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? It drifts us towards disobedience. Complaining implies a lack of trust in God. God, you you messed it up. Can't believe you've allowed 2020 to happen. I mean, am I the only one who's thought that? I mean, I'm not proud of it, but I'm like, God, really? Like, what happened here? You know, I think you hiccuped. Something's not right. No, God is sovereignly in control. He's providentially wise to all that is happening. Complaining demonstrates discontentment. It demonstrates ungratefulness. We talked about thankfulness and the thankful heart last time. We need to be demonstrating that. That is the attitude we should have as opposed to that opposite attitude of complaining, which shows that I'm not content with what God has given me. I'm not grateful with what he has blessed me with. I'm not thankful for the leaders that he's placed in my life. I'm discontent with them. So what am I going to do? Am I just going to go find another church that's going to do everything the way I want? Then what happens when they don't want to do that? You go to another church and then you go to another? That's not healthy. No, we work together. We have differing opinions. We have harmony within our body. That is true unity. Complaining leaves a bad testimony. I know some of you are like, oh, I don't want to hear about the testimony thing. But isn't there a verse that we often quote to our kids out of Philippians chapter 2? Do all things without murmuring and disputing or without grumbling and complaining. It's a direct reference back to the wilderness, the murmuring times. But have you ever read the next verse with it? Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights of the world. Paul directly relates grumbling and complaining to a bad testimony. He's saying we ought to be the ones who are displaying a proper attitude. How to handle these dark times. How to handle them in a crooked, in a perverse nation that is not going the way of God, but is going the way of Satan. That is following after the things that are not God's. What am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to complain and grumble and, and whine and bicker about it? No. I am supposed to do my life without complaining, without the grumbling, It's a heart attitude. And we must work on it. We must work through that. And that's why there's a a book I want to recommend to you. It's a book called Lord Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late. It's by James McDonald. There's one copy. It's right here in the bookstore. Or you can get it online somewhere else. Sharon calls this her smack upside the head. She reads this every... and, And I don't see Sharon as somebody who is a my wife, as someone who is a complainer. But she, she loves this book. I love it. People are encouraged to read it. They call it the meddling book because it meddles into our heart attitudes. Because complaining is so prevalent, we feel it's our right. 
And the Lord is looking and saying, it is an attitude issue that has to change. I would truly encourage you to read it. It talks about the wilderness. It's, it goes right along with our numbers study. It talks about replacing my attitude of uh, discontentment with an attitude of contentment. And he, and he goes through, he does a really good job with it. But there's a, there's a quote in this book. He says this about complaining. Complaining is an attitude choice that if left unchecked, will wither my capacity to experience joy and genuine thankfulness. Has your complaining spirit in 2020 robbed you of joy and gratefulness? Full disclosure, it has for me. It has for me a number of times. Way more often than I even want to admit. My complaining disgruntled heart in this last year has robbed me of joy and it's wrong. And I've had to confess that to God. But are you going to sit and wallow in the wilderness of complaints? Or are you going to repent of that and experience the genuine joy and thankfulness that God wants you to experience? Put the complaining away. Let's put it away. Let's move forward and be sons of God, children of light. And do all things without grumbling and without complaining. We can do that. Let's purpose in our hearts to live the way that God wants us to do. Without complaint. Lord, help me to really work at this. You know my heart struggles with this, with this passage, with complaining. And I pray that you would help me and help those who are listening to have an attitude that is appropriate and not a complaining, bitter, arrogant spirit. Help us to be humble. Help us to be respectful and Lord. Help us to be harmonious in our church. Bring us together. Give us unity. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.